for those of you who may or may not know, Winston, Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of, of, um, of England, UK, and he led that nation and also the allied forces basically of the world through the war and um, he did it from this bunker that basically is underground of the parliament. And so you go underneath and it's this rabbit warren of little rooms and hovels and really simple basic infrastructure. But anyway, Winston Churchill um, led the war from down underground there. And he, he has this saying, so we got to go there and sort of track through his life and the development of his story and it was quite powerful and quite amazing. But he had this quote and he says this, he says, We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Let me just read that again. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. You see, right now we're in this time where many of us are having to either renegotiate our lives, reprioritize our lives, refigure out what does it mean for me to steward the resources that God has placed into my care. Um, and we And we in the West, we often fall foul of um, hoping for better circumstances across the world. For example, in places like, it's when I say fall foul of this, we we the motives of our heart get relieved, uh, exposed because we want the price of oil to drop, and therefore we want the water stop, rather than we want the water stop because there are people who are losing their lives. And therefore, maybe as a result of that, the price of oil might come down because our, our motives get exposed in times like this. The reprioritization of our heart and our life is taking place in our culture right now. And for many people, we're not wanting to deal with that. We're wanting to actually ignore that and or, and or we want to narrow it down and make it just about me and my survival and my comfort and my plans, irrespective of what's happening around me or the people that I live with. John Wesley once said this. He said, Do you not know that God has entrusted you with that money above, above what buys the necessities for your family to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to help the stranger, the widow, the fatherless, and indeed as far as it will go to relieve the wants of all mankind. So John Wesley, for those of you who may or may not know in, in terms of church history, he was known as a non-conformist. He was an Anglican minister, but he got into trouble because he was um, doing things outside of the traditional strictures of his denomination. And in the end, he became he and his wife Sarah ended up leading this massive movement of God and and a wave of people coming into the kingdom and and a movement known as Methodism. Another guy, he's a this guy's a a, um, a financial um, counselor, someone that you might go and see. This guy's a Christian guy, and he says, if you show me your checkbook, which most of us probably wouldn't have a clue what a checkbook is anymore, but you know you're. Um, your account statements. If you show me your checkbook, I will show you where your heart is. If you show me your statements, I'll show you where your heart is. 
And, you know, Larry Burkett says that. And when you hold that up against someone like a John Wesley, you go, actually, um, am I living not just with this sense of understanding that God's interested in me and the necessities of my family, but he's also interested in the hungry, the naked, the strangers, the widows, the fatherless, and in fact, way beyond where I can even see, he is actually interested in others that I don't personally know, but I know are there. And God, you know, through Wesley, reminds us that we're all deeply connected. Today, we're going to just commence a little journey of rediscovering of what kingdom generosity is like in an era of financial anxiety. So let's um, grab a hold of uh, Luke chapter 3, and I'm just going to read a little section here. So this, this in Luke chapter 3, um, in verse, verses 1 through to about 18, it'll be on the screen if you, if you don't have your Bible with you. Um, but the, the context is this, okay? Jesus is, is, is born as Messiah, Israel's Messiah and Savior of the world. Jesus is the king. And Luke is writing to, uh, to encourage his audience and anyone who listen that now that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that all of the blessings of God's prophetic promises way back as far as Abraham have now broken in on the scene and that God is now ruling as king through Jesus into the world. And he writes, Luke is writing here, and he takes one of Isaiah's old scriptures, old prophetic voices, that there would come this voice into the earth one day that would say, prepare the way of the Lord. And, and John the, um, Luke is basically saying, that's John the Baptist, okay? And John owns that scripture, and he reads it over himself, and he reinterprets that to point to Jesus. And then as a result of this, there is this big question that the people are asking. Well, if Jesus is the king, if Jesus is really the fulfillment of God's plan to bless the whole world, even as God said he would through Abraham and the promise of Abraham, what does that mean for us? They're brave and they ask the next question. They see what's happening and then they ask the question, well, what does that mean for us? And so today I'm, I'm asking that question, what does it mean for you and for me to be followers of Jesus, knowing Jesus as Lord? So Luke chapter 3, uh, I'm going to read that there for you. You can follow on the screen or use your own Bible. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iteria and Traconius and Licinius Tetrarch of Abil. There's some great names, isn't there? Hey? I, you know, just a little trick or a little key, someone, someone much wiser and much more theologically adept and deft and touched uh, than I once said, when you get to those big words and you're reading the Bible out loud in front of people, if you can't pronounce it, just say, word too hard. So, for example, his brother Philip, tetrarch of word too hard, 
and word too hard and word too hard and tetrarch of word too hard. He says that's quite a legitimate way to read the Bible, okay? So I just want to encourage you, it's quite a legitimate way to read the Bible. That will not prevent the Holy Spirit from revealing to you what God's got on his heart for you today, all right? Um, all right, and the, then the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness, And he went into the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so there you go. Baptism for the forgiveness of sins didn't originate with Jesus. It was a long-held Jewish practice. In other words, change your mind. Follow God. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all the people will see God's salvation. And John said to the crowds who were running out to be baptized by him, how's this? They're running to him thinking, oh, this is it. This is it. This this guy's like proclaiming the, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And his first words to them are, you brood of vipers. <laughs> oh, okay. Hello. Who warned you? Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear, does not produce good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a pretty like intense kind of welcome message, isn't it? What should we do then? If if God is really breaking into the world, if Jesus is truly the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of all people that would institute the blessing of God into the earth. What should we do now? John answers them. Anyone who has two shirts should share the one who, with one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't exhort, extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Be content with your pay. Australia, be content with your pay. The people were, ex- were waiting expectantly and were all wondering with their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them, look, I baptize you with water, but there is one who is more powerful than I who will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chafe with an unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and he proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage and Herodias, his brother's, to Herodias, his brother's wife, and with all of the other evil things he did, Herod added this to them all and he locked John up in prison. It's a really like, that's a very dense bit of scripture and there's a lot in there. But what I want us to try and grab a hold of 
is this understanding that with the arrival of Jesus and John uh, and John proclaiming the fulfillment of Jesus has now come, the King has now come, what are the first things that are on the conversation point on the front of God to the culture at that time, to the people at that time? Well, he says to those who have two shirts, give one to the one who doesn't. He says to those who have plenty, be generous. He says to the, those that hold positions of power and influence, he says, don't extort, don't squeeze out what you don't need to. Only take what is proper and let justice be there for others. You see, we too, what should we do? What should we do in our moment when everyone is telling us, be nervous, be anxious, be concerned about your financial well-being? Well, as the kingdom would come to us, what would we do? Well, do we have an extra coat and are we sharing it with others? Do we have enough money for lunch and do we have enough to buy lunch for someone else? Do we, um, you know, perhaps not many of us in this room are tax collectors, but do we approach our tax time as we're about to, the end of the financial year, do we approach that with an honest heart or do we seek to work the system to minimise the tax that we need to justly pay? What's the attitude of our heart here? Where, where are we? What should we do if Jesus really is the king? Let me just, um, if we can just jump to the next, uh, next slide. Oh, sorry, next slide. Thanks, Isaac, with the circle. I just want to say, you know, conversation around money can be a very awkward conversation to have publicly. I think we're okay talking about people who are, you know, running um, big public companies and earning big, big salaries. We're pretty okay about talking about them. We're okay about saying, oh, that, that, that wage that, you know, those guys and girls are getting at that level of, of um, company, that's ex either extreme or it's, it's crazy. What about everyone else that's working in that business or that company? We're okay talking about that stuff. But when it comes down to the kitchen table and we're sitting with each other as friends or as disciples of Jesus, how transparent are we there about our circumstances? We're not usually as free and disclosing about our own stuff, but we're quite happy to talk about someone else's stuff. Well, in this season, right now, I would want to suggest that it's actually the gift of God for you to sit with each other and learn a better degree of transparency and openness toward each other as a gift of God to help each other navigate this. Recently, Nicole and I, as when we were in Melbourne, we jumped around to a number of local churches and then we facilitated the leadership conference in, in, um, in the city. And we kept hearing the same story over and over and over again from pastors and leaders of local churches around the country. Over and over and over again. Pastors and leaders are scared in the church to talk about finance and money. 
and they are scared for a few reasons. The first one is no one wants to be perceived as a big mega church that uh, and come under the perception of all churches do is ask for money. And so rather than teach into it, they pull back from t- talking about it at all and draw back into oh, this is a privacy matter, this is a quiet matter, this is a matter that should be kept between me and God. And so pastors tend not to talk about it because it's perceived as a private thing and don't want to be perceived as I'm just on about banging on about the money so that I can get a nicer car and, and ultimately fly around the world in a jet whenever I want. And or right now, there are some really big Australian megachurches that are crumbling, crumbling because of the mismanagement of finance and the abuse of that finance. Local churches in this season, more than ever, than I have seen in my 30-something years of ministry in local church setting, local churches, pastors and leaders, more than ever, are fast running out of resource because they are living under this fear of perception first and foremostly. Don't ever go to the church because all they do is ask for money. They're scared about talking about money. And I must confess, this is another part. that's It's just one of those awkward conversations to have, particularly... If you're in a situation like Nicole or I, where we are actually employees of the organisation called Vineyard Pine Rivers, who pays our wage, and therefore we're standing in front of you saying, please pay your offerings. And one of the awkward sensations of a pastor and or a leader is it feels like we're trying to crank the pump so that we can get paid. That's a, that's a very legitimate experience that so many pastors and leaders, doesn't matter what stripe or brand is over the door, everywhere we go and talk, it is difficult and awkward for someone in this position to be able to talk openly and invite people into it. And so we ask in this moment for grace. It's one of those awkward conversations. It's like, you know, for the first time you're having the, the sex talk with your teenage kids. It's a little bit awkward. It's just, well, okay, this is going to be clunky at best, but we need to have the conversation anyway. Um, <clears throat> the third thing is this we've discovered time and time again is that not only is it awkward and not only is there a fear of perception, but we also come into and encounter um, demonic structural powers that are at work actively squeezing and working against the fulfilment of God's promise that through his kingdom people, all the people of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so there's a, there's a kingdom assignment that is demonic and dark and structured that is seeking to squeeze that out of, act, out of action and into oblivion. So there's, there's just three little things. As we sort of launch into this conversation over the next few weeks, there's just three things that we felt like we wanted to just let you know up front. 
this is what we're kind of wading our way through. And, um, and so we ask and invite you to pray. Now, what about Jesus? See, when, when, when Luke records the arrival of Jesus and John the Baptist is saying, well, if the kingdom's here, have you got an extra shirt? Do you have enough to pay for someone else's dinner? And, and don't extort or don't try and dodge the realities of honest living with the resources that are in your hands. Remember what Churchill said. We build, what was it again? We build a life by what we get. Or we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Hold that one just in play. What about for Jesus? What about him with regards to his focus, his teaching? He was quite happy for John the Baptist as his forerunner to hail the fact that God is deeply interested in material realities and financial issues. Well, in the four Gospels, I did some research with um, reading some other people's work. In the four Gospels, Jesus talks about money more than any other subject other than the kingdom of God. Jesus taught about money three times more than he taught about love and seven times more than he taught about prayer. Jesus talked more about money than heaven. He talked more about money than hell or eternal well-being. 17 out of his 39 parables were directly addressing the issue of material resource and money. 25% of Jesus' teaching are about wealth, material matters, and money. 25% of his teaching. Now, as someone who stands in the awkward position talking about this stuff, you know, I was listening to one preacher during the week, and he, he went back and he looked at all of his messages that he'd given and he did the equations. He added them all up, all the messages that he'd done, and he said, what's the percentage of teaching that I'm doing? And he came out at 0.5 of a percent, of 1%. And he, he then stood in front of his people and said, I'm so sorry that I've skirted away from something that was such a high priority of Jesus because of my fears. And so I too would want to stand in front of you as I did the maths on all of my years of teaching. Less than 2% of my teaching has ever touched on the issue of money. And I've been at this for 30-something years. Less than 2%. So like this guy I was listening to, I would want to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry as well. That 98% of the time, I'm, I'm happy to equip you and teach you and resource you and, and give you practical tools for life and ministry and experiences of God. But because it's awkward, I've let it be less than 2% of the time to talk about money. And I ask for your forgiveness. You see, for us, it's easier to sometimes not delve into these difficult spaces or these awkward spaces. But if this is Jesus' priorities, if he's like, you know, the kingdom of God, money and financial management and material issues as the second highest priority of his teachings, then we need to wrestle with, are we letting our lives be prioritized by Jesus and his priorities? Why is it that Jesus spent so much time going after this issue? And are we willing to go there with Jesus ourselves? 
Um, if we could go into the next slide, thanks, mate. You see, we live these very Western lives, you know, where we, we, we have this mindset and this cultural experience of either or, and we separate things out. We use words like sacred and secular. In other words, oh, sacred, that belongs to God. Secular, oh, that belongs to me. And somehow we live with this dualism of, oh, yeah, that's my God part of my life, but this is my part of my life. And, and we, we, we rationalise that in so many ways. It's like, yeah, I'm happy for God to um, be involved in those sacred, special moments in my life, but don't, don't come near me, God, when I want to choose the way I spend my time, energy and resource. There's the, there's the, the, um, the folly of our heart. We think spiritual and material. We spiritualize things which become internal, private things. Material, external, comforting things. We talk about heaven as though it's somewhere up there and earth, well, that's where we're stuck, somewhere down here. And we isolate those two things from each other. Now, if you were Jesus and if you were in the audience of Luke, uh, as Luke wrote that and they heard John the Baptist um, saying, hey, guys, you do need to do something, it's because they had an understanding of their life that was deeply, deeply integrated. For them to, to think the idea of God stuff over there and everyday life stuff over here and never the two shall meet was just not in their thinking. They were deeply integrated people, people of, of Hebrew thinking. It's like your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage every other aspect of your life, relationally, materially, spiritually, economically, you name it. If we jump onto that next slide, um, Isaac, this is a, I, I, I always love using this little illustration. Because it's like, you know, I want to be baptized, Lord. But so often in the quiet little recesses of our life, it's like, yes, I want all of you, but I'm keeping that part for me. I'm keeping this bit for me. But that's, that's just not the way that God's written the story. That's not the way that God's invited us to live. He's writing a better story of his kingdom where you don't need to fight for the tension between what you want to keep as yours and when everything actually belongs to him. And in fact, we're invited to be his stewards of the everything that he's given us. I like that little quote there. It's a great one, isn't it? Your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage money and possessions. Directly connected. Now there's a long big arc in the story of God through the Bible. Genesis through to Revelation. It's a huge arc and we're not going to get through that whole arc today. I just want to bring you in on the starting pad, on the launching pad today, so that we can begin to just get a sense of who this God is that's revealed himself to us in Jesus and called us into what he has always destined. And now the, the story of the Exodus, God's people in Egypt living under the rule and reign of Pharaoh and all of the economic and social pressure and religious stricture that was on their lives. 
they get set free by God. God leads them out from underneath all of those demonic powers. And there's all these plagues. There's like 10 of them in the, in the exiting process. And those plagues are all of the then known cultural and spiritual gods and practices that were in place and at play. And each and every one of them was conquered and broken. And the people of God were set free to begin a journey with God. And we see there in Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Bible, we see the real story begin to take place. And the real story is this. What does it look like when God gets a hold of a group of people and they walk together with God leading them? This is the real story and this is where it begins. It's a story where God actually shows people that he can be relied upon. And not only relied upon, he is deeply given to providing for people. It's also a story that reveals a posture of heart and life practice of either thanksgiving or mistrust. It's a story of life and living unlike any other story that's in the earth. And it's a story of how God says, ultimately, I'll look after you every single day. I will look after you. Um, Exodus chapter 16 uh, uh, reads, in Exodus 16, there's this story where, where God says to, um, to his people through Moses, these commitments, let me read it to you. Exodus 16. The whole Israelite community, they'd set out from Elam and they came to a desert which was between Elam and Sinai and on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt in the desert, the whole community began to grumble against Moses and Aaron and Israelites said to them, if only we had died on the Lord, in the Lord's, by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around in Egypt, living under oppression with pots of meat, and we ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve and, the entire, and starve this entire assembly of people to death. And then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out every day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them to see whether they'll follow my instructions. And on the sixth day of the week, they're meant to to prepare what they bring in um, and that it is to be twice as much as they gather on every other day so that on the seventh day they could have a rest from gathering. God's foundational promise to his people, walking together in the kingdom is, I will rain down provision for you. Take what you need. Go out every day. Now, if you read a little bit further on, um, <laughs> if you read a little bit further on in the story, let's, I'm just going to pick up in, um, in verse 16. This is what the Lord commanded. Everyone's to gather as much as they need. So whatever your perception is of your need in that day, in that moment, go and gather that. 
God's not saying don't gather what you need. He's saying, no, you need these things. Go and gather up what you need. As much as you need for each person. And the Israelites did as they were told. They, some gathered much and some gathered little. And when they measured it by, by the omer, which was a scale, the one who gathered much amazingly did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. And then Moses said to them, don't keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses and they kept part of it until the morning. But it was by morning, it was full of maggots and it stank. <laughs> so saving plans are really difficult in a moment like that, aren't they? Saving plans are really challenging in a moment like that, yet saving plans we are driven by in our context. And yet God is saying, I have enough for you. I will provide for you. Take what you need. Don't take more than you need. Take what you need. Because the reality is if we take more than we need, we actually take away the need that's supplied for those that are around us as well. That's what he commands them. So by the time it gets, that story of God jumps ahead a little bit more, God is actually now making this, through Moses, a law in the book of Deuteronomy. It actually becomes one of the high laws of God. Make sure you only take what you need. Um, my question is, are we paying attention to the heart of God, which is to provide, or does our resource base smell a little bit? Now, don't get too personal here, Kirk. But, but I, now, what the smell looks like, it looks like anxiety over the resources that you have. Are you worryful and anxious when your father knows what you need and he has it for you? God gave them exactly what they needed. So in taking more than what you needed, it was also a revelation of my heart doesn't trust God. But God was shaping a people, freeing a people, and empowering a people to live with both a posture and a heart that was free from anxiety about provision as well as a daily lifestyle that told a story to anyone that was watching we're walking in the blessing of God and Abraham. We are walking in the blessing of God and Abraham. It's a blessing that only God can fulfill because he is a king. It's a different economy. It's not one that this world understands. And it is one that, will tell, that invites people to live a different life. Do we have everything we need? Is our heart free from the anxiety in regards to provision? Is our daily consumption an experience of God's sufficiency? Is our daily experience something that smells a little off and maybe 
we need to do just a little bit of homework in our heart with God in this season. In Leviticus 19, it's a gr- I'm going to land here, but this is a really great scripture because what God's saying is to the people, he's like, okay, now we're, I've brought you out. I've demonstrated to you time and time again, you can trust me for your whole life. I have everything for you. I'm not holding anything back. I am a God who provides. He then says, okay, now you're about to set up your life together on land. You're about to have your own place and space. And I want you to treat that as a reflection of my image through you to the world. And he says this, he says, when you reap your harvest from your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings from your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time and pick up all the extra grapes that have fallen. Why? Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. Where are the, so God is establishing way, this is, like way back as a lifestyle of kingdom of God people, uh, we are here and we're called to be this, a people who always have margins in our life, margins of resource for people because we take what we need, not, not more, we trust what God provides for us and in doing so we manage that and steward that in such a way that there is always margin. We leave the edges or the margins so that the poor and the wanderer can find God's love and generosity through our life. Are we living with margins? That requires us to be intentional about our life. That requires us to be intentional about our homes, that, inco- that requires us to be intentional and plan. But from God's perspective, he has always wanted a people who would walk with him, trusting him for his provision and his ability to provide it, and that through that provision, the people would live and steward it in such a way that it would, they would, we would always have what we need and there would always be enough for others, and in particular, the poor, the wanderer, and the strangers. That is super countercultural, super countercultural to where we're living right now. But this is the way of the kingdom of God. And when John said Jesus arrived, it's that long, deep story of God forming a people in the earth that he's about to institute through Jesus' people. So this morning, just as we finish here, on that last slide, thanks Isaac, I just want you to finish in this space. Remember these things, because in, in, um, in Deuteronomy 24, if you were to go there again, it says there, um, let me read it again. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat the olives from the trees, don't go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, 
When you have harvested the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This This is why I command you to do this. So on that last slide, remember, once we were lost and bound and caught and oppressed and anxious people. Once, remember, but now we have met God's rescuing love in Jesus and he delivers you and me from every anxiety and every power that's associated with this resourcing issue. Remember, his love rescues. Remember, his love provides. Remember, he does this for you, your family, the ones you love the most. And remember, he does this for you and with us. And with us for the sake of our wider community and region. And he does it because God wants the poor, the widow, and the wanderer to experience his justice for their life, that they too might know that God is a good king. Remember. Remember. And it's interesting the word that Lord uses that word, remember, when he spoke to the people of Israel way back then and King David uses that word a lot. He speaks to his own soul saying, remember the benefits of God. The reason why God's saying remember is because we are forgetful. There's no condemnation in that. There's no guilt in that. That's just what we're like. We're forgetful. And we go and take more than we need and we actually, our lives and our resources begin to smell a little bit it's because the maggots have got in them it's because anxiety rules and Jesus doesn't now I know I'm touching on a very sensitive issue and it feels very awkward for me to do so but I thank you for the grace that you give me to be able to talk about this together because together You know what? God is going to write a story and he's already doing it through us as his people into our region that tells a better story. That whenever you come near anyone from the vineyard, there's always margins. They always have something in the cupboard. They always have an ability to feed. There's always a sense of welcome no matter where you're coming from or who you are. There's a generosity of God here that's it's unlike other places. That's who God's making us to be. And in this season, more than ever, I believe this is a work of the Spirit of God. In this season, in particular. Who's feeling a little awkward around all of this this morning? Feel free to put your hand up and join me because this is full on. This is very, very full on. Who's, 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 who's willing to go, God, I, I, want to, I want to remember. I want to remember.
I want to remember your rescuing love. You have all I need. You are willing to provide. Help me trust in you and live this out. Let's just pray for a minute. I love it on the days when the Holy Spirit says, hey, I want to start working on this stuff. In the, and it's, it's, it's the honest stuff, you know. It's not the religious stuff. It's the stuff of the heart. Holy Spirit, reveal God to us in this moment, I pray. Reveal the Father's love to us. And as you do that, Lord, I pray you generously just expose the, you know, the gear that we've built up as infrastructure in our heart to kind of do the sacred and secular thing. Try to hold them apart from your love. But, Lord, have mercy on us. Just forgive us today for that and set us free. Come, Lord, come. We want to live in the generosity of who you are, God, more than ever. Come. Help us reprioritize our priorities, Lord. It was the first thing on the the forefront of John the Baptist's message that God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God who prophesied through Isaiah is now on the scene and he's going to reprioritize our lives with his kingdom and his understanding of generosity. Come, Lord, come. Help us, Lord. We want to live like your people for your glory, for the sake of the world, even as John Wesley said it. There's another little saying he had, which was, the world is my parish. He understood his life in the context of what God was doing all over the world. And so it is for you and me. How we administer and steward This resource he's been so generous to give has implications for for our life and for the people all around the world in knowing Jesus. Help us, Lord. We want to be disciples of the King. And I ask, Lord, this morning that every irrational fear and anxiety that's been charged by just demonic structures and spiritual dynamics in the atmosphere in this season, I just ask, Lord Jesus, in your goodness, you'll break through. We we choose not to be driven. We choose to be led by the Spirit. We are not to be driven by the anxieties of this world.
Lord, you've saved us from that. And we give you thanks. I pray, Lord, just in this next week for some really great conversations in our own hearts with you, Lord, and with each other. Some of us with our spouses, others of us with parents or grandparents or friends or work colleagues. I I ask for sincere, honest conversations around this, Lord, so that we can walk in freedom and not be held captive by it. Come, Holy Spirit. Bless your people today, Lord. And I pray too, Lord, that where as your church, you know, Lord, just as a as a person who's been involved in ministry and as a leader in the body of Christ, I just ask for your forgiveness where we have painted wrong pictures and and or fearful about talking or touching on this issue. Lord, I, I ask for your forgiveness, Lord. And you would set me free and you'd set every other pastor and leader around this nation free to be able to bring just a really wonderful, life-giving invitation of walking in your generosity, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you're renewing your church in this season and you're equipping your people to live the life we've always really wanted to live with you, Jesus, especially in this area. We just, again, submit our lives to you, Jesus. You're a good king. Lead us on, we pray. And deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forevermore. In your name we pray. Amen.